it's not how much you write. It's what you say, and frequently, we are our own worst enemies. You know, I think in emergency medicine, our primary goal is to make a diagnosis. So you have to have all of these diagnoses in your differential, in your head, so that you can ask questions that help lead you to those diagnoses. Hey, it's Rick Picotta, Risk Management Monthly, coming to you for November. I've got on the line... Uh, Mike Weinstock, who's going to be our guest, uh, who's been our guest multiple times in the past, and Gregory. Gregory's in Ann Arbor. Mike is in Ohio someplace. Yes, Mike, uh, welcome Ohio. aboard. <laughs> Thanks for having me. <laughs> uh, for those of you who uh, are familiar with the Bounce Back series of books, Mike is uh, written... Are you like in your ninth version now? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, this is the month, November, when the Bounce Back Critical Care, our fourth edition, will be out. And I would like to point out that I have been in all of his editions of Bounce Back. For better or for worse? (laughs) For better or for worse. It did not help the sales, I don't think. Well, the focus of today's uh, time together is uh, documentation, and Mike has some uh, great stories about documentation where it got people into a big time trouble. And so that's, that's going to be where we're talking. Uh, Mike, why don't you run with the ball and periodically, uh, we'll add our two cents. That's great, Rick. And you know, this is actually a really big interest of mine for several reasons. The first of which of course, is that I believe we can actually find a technique within documentation to improve patient safety. And I know that sounds sort of crazy because nobody went for their medical school interview and said they wanted to go into medicine for documentation and throughput, right? But I think there is a way, and that's something that we can talk about subsequently with the medical decision-making aspect where we can use that as a hard stop when we can ask ourselves the question, you know, does my evaluation, does my management seem reasonable based on what I've recorded? But before we even do that, I want to tell a story. And the story is a true story of myself walking out of the ED at three o'clock in the morning. I worked the 6 p.m. to 3 a.m. shift. And as I'm walking out, and I could even sort of see the double bay squad doors in front of me, which is sort of where we entered and exited from the emergency department. I was like walking towards the light, right? And I could see the doors. And I heard from my right, from room number three, a nurse yelled out, can we have a doctor in here? I need a doctor right away. And so I was right there and they'd already seen me, right? So I walked in and I saw this unfortunate elderly woman, late sixties, wasn't incredibly elderly, but she, (laughs) I only said that. Now you've started a fight across the ages here. Be careful with, you know, I've I've lusted after near 60 year old women. So (laughs) don't do that. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I see, let me just keep it totally objective. A woman in her late 60s who unfortunately was taking some apneic breaths and then subsequently arrested. And even though the attempt at resuscitation was And though the attempt at resuscitation was unsuccessful, what I did is later went back and looked at the record. And though it was an incredibly long period of time, the patient had been in the waiting room for almost an hour and a half, which for some EDs is a very short period of time. For ours, it seemed to be fairly long. This was a community ED, almost 80,000 visits a year, so a pretty busy community ED. But the night shift physician was one that did a lot of documenting. In other words, 
you could read the charts and they were beautiful. There was like the, like the novella, like, you know, war and peace, each one. However, it really brought home to me the point that when you spend a lot of time on your documentation, this is in a busy ED, a zero sum game. So the more time that you spend, that I spend documenting a chart, the less time that I have at bedside and the less time I have for the most important role that we have, which is thinking, then of course, other things like procedures, et cetera. So I did a deep dive into the literature and there's a lot of studies on this, not tons, but some, the two best that I found, one was by Hill et al. in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. The other one was Sinsky in Annals of Internal Medicine. And they found that we spend, and this isn't really incredibly surprising information, but we spend two hours of time documenting for every one hour that we spend at the bedside. And that equates to 4,000 mouse clicks per shift, which is really an astounding amount of time when you think about what we're doing in our day and what we're trying to do, which obviously is help patients and improve patient safety. So what I did is I went back and did some thinking about why we even document in the first place, like a bird's eye view of documenting. And I, I thought of four main reasons. And so I'll just sort of say those and then um, I'm very interested in, in, in the thoughts of, of the group here on this. But the first one is, of course, is to inform future providers. So for example, the patient that we're seeing now in the ED later comes back to the ED, it might be important to know what their neurologic exam was at the time. Or for example, a patient that we admit, it might be important to know the extent of their cellulitis when they are seeing and trying to determine response to therapy. Or even if we're handing off a patient, which obviously is a high risk time. Second would be for billing reasons. And of course, we deserve to be compensated for the time and the effort and the expertise that we have in caring for patients. So the third level is the level of being legally protected, which I'm guessing is what most people would think is the primary reason that they document. But Greg, I've quoted you when I've given this lecture many times I've done over the last number of years, I've quoted you as saying, and I, and I hope I, I got this quote correct, but that you have said in the past that you are able to sometimes, or sometimes you do, document your own malpractice. So just because you want it to be legally protective doesn't necessarily mean that that's the case. That's uh, absolutely. It's, it's not how much you write. It's what you say, and frequently, we are our own worst enemies. There are two things in documentation you got to think about. What you actually know the patient's course is and what the other healthcare professionals are going to write down. Because if you're not in line with the nursing staff, the triage staff, the other people, all you've done is put out enough rope to hang yourself. And that's all it is. Well, that, that's interesting you use that analogy. And we're going to actually hear some closing statements by an attorney where he actually sort of, sort of, you know, thought and, and, and actually said sort of, of what, what you had actually just sort of said there. But what I'd like to do is to wrap all of this discussion in that main question is that can the act of documentation actually make patients safer? And what we're going to do is we're going to actually look at specific documentation that was done, mostly with this session here with the chief complaint and with the history, and then we're going to look at 
in patients, unfortunately, where there was an adverse outcome, how that played out at trial. And I'm going to actually read to you specific deposition and actual trial testimony with regards to what specifically was done at the bedside. So before we do that, just the last part of this little introduction part here is our malpractice question. And we all know, and just very briefly, that malpractice requires four different levels. One, the physician has a duty that's usually pretty obvious, you know, we are wearing a white coat, the patient has a thin hospital gown and is shivering, right? The second is that the patient is, that the physician has breached the duty, that's the standard of care. Number three, that there was harm, that's usually pretty easy also, the patient is horizontal and room temperature, not hard to cause to prove that. And then the fourth is that the harm was somehow caused by our breach of duty, that's the causation or the proximate cause. So just thinking about number two and number four, the standard of care and causation, and that's what we're really gonna focus on with our discussion here today. So if it's okay with you guys, or any thoughts that you have before we, we go, but we'll have a pretty deep dive into the chief complaint and then a deep dive into the history with the discussion of these things, as well as some specific examples. Sounds good. No, I'm fine with it. All right. So the chief complaint on the surface seems very easy, right? It's just, you know, what the patient is saying. And we've taught, or at least I was taught in medical school at, at Ohio State. I, you know, this is the exact words of the patient, why they are there. But the more I've thought about this, delved in the literature as well as practiced emergency medicine for over 25 years, the more that I have realized that there's actually some subtleties to the chief complaint. And the first two levels of that are pretty obvious. And the first is even the most obvious, which is that the patient is asking a question. So for example, if it's a patient with left lower pelvic pain, who's 19 years old, their question might be, can I have from some relief from my pain or a patient with a headache or chest pain or whatever it might happen to be. But the second level, and I'm actually gonna talk about three, three plus one, so an additional level also. But the second level is one that I think that most experienced emergency medicine physicians are aware of, emergency medicine clinicians, I would say also including, of course, PAs and NP, is the patient's presentations question. So for example, that 19-year-old that I gave an example with left lower pelvic pain, well, she might be asking, can I have some relief from my pain? But the question that her presentation is asking, especially with eight weeks of amenorrhea, is, is this an ectopic pregnancy or a ruptured ectopic pregnancy? So obviously, it's really incumbent upon us to understand the question that the presentation is asking. And again, I'm going to give some specific examples of that. So I'm guessing Rick and Greg, in your careers, you've had times when a patient's presentation has asked a question, but I mean, maybe even Greg with some of the medical legal work you've done where the physician hasn't really answered that question with their diagnosis and their disposition. Absolutely. And the big, the big problem is you and I use words with each other and the patient uses words to modify, amplify, uh, exemplify their condition, what you have to do is step back and actually say this, what, what are they asking, asking me to do or what do they think is going on? Because they've used a phrase or a word which they've heard before doesn't mean it has anything to do with what's actually uh, a pathologic process going on. And, and those are very different. And of course, the patient, 
wants to get their two cents worth out saying, I need paid medicine and I need to be taken care of right now. And that's not what you and I want to know first. It just isn't. Well, the other thing, too, I think is that um, one of the questions is, what's wrong with me? And sometimes we just in the diagnosis section of the chart, we really uh, don't come up with really a good explanation of what's wrong. And so you put down nonspecific um Abdominal pain. Well, that doesn't say very much at all. It just says, I don't know uh, what, what it is. I know what it isn't, but I don't know what it is. Yes. And, or we, or something like nonspecific, you know, uh, vomiting or, or the like, which well, is basically a restatement of the chief complaint, you know, it's, uh, that, that, that we haven't made any, any progress here, particularly. One so, of my best teachers once said it's the, the uh, disease is idiopathic which means uh, the doctor is an idiot and the patient is pathetic. Uh, and I think th that may be correct that uh, sometimes, and, and there is such a thing as anchor biasing, that once we get, we get start going down a pathway in medicine, it, it takes a lot of effort to get the doctor back to an objective view of what's happening. Well, I want to I start it, with a. Oh, go ahead. Go well, ahead. I, I think the other thing too is is that when you talk about chief complaint, um, sometimes we're not really very good at finding out what the chief complaint really is, uh, and we dance around it, or we don't. Um, not all the symptoms of a patient carry equal weight, and it's our job to kind of sift through these and say, what well, what is the primary problem here? There may be some associated problems with it, but what is the primary problem that the person's got? Because it's called the chief complaint. Right, call it call the chief complaint for a reason, right? Uh, the, you know, the vital signs are called the vital signs for a reason, right? So. What I wanted to do is give some specific examples of how this played out. So the first level, what the patient's concerned about, the second level, the question that their presentation is asking. And so the first one is a patient by the name of Stacy. And Stacy was the like greatest person ever. And we actually have talked about Stacy on Risk Management Monthly. And just to recap, she's a 41-year-old woman. She is part of the working poor. She has a daughter and an adopted son, and she went to the emergency department, and I'm going to read you her actual chief complaint. She got to the emergency department at 6.13 p.m., and she complained of, quote, chest pain, and this is how it's recorded, chest pain, dash, pain from above the waist to head, neck, and arms. That's actually what the chief complaint said. Now, when she left, her diagnosis was hypertension, and bronchospasm. And I will tell you that the emergency physician was actually accurate with this. The patient did have an elevated blood pressure and did have bronchospasm. So they weren't untruthful with that diagnosis. However, we didn't ask, we didn't answer the question that the patient's presentation asked. Now, the most obvious question would be, am I having a heart attack? Of course, to us, hopefully as, you know, practiced emergency physicians, right? We think, well, it's maybe one of the big three, ACS, PE, or dissection, or the second three, like pericardial tamponade, tension pneumothorax, or Borhoff syndrome, or any other sort of can't miss causes, life-threatening causes of chest pain. But I'll tell you how I know that this was Stacy's question, and it's 
based on the opening statement, which I'm going to read you here. And this is the opening statement from the plaintiff attorney. This isn't my, <laughs> these aren't my words, but this is the plaintiff attorney's opening statement. They say, good morning, everybody. One of the major reasons people come to the ED in the U.S. is because of chest pain. Not all of it is fatal, and it's not always easy to diagnose. And the rule in the ED is that you treat chest pain as a heart attack until you rule it out. That's the rule. The evidence is going to show that when Stacy left the hospital with her friend Deneen, they were in shock. Deneen regrets to this day that she did not bar the door and say, no, we're not leaving. We're not leaving. But they did. It's going to be up to you the jury, to figure out whether the discharge of Stacy was wrong, was negligent. The failure to even get a basic history was a violation of the standard. We strongly believe that had these things been done, Stacy would be here today and she would be raising her children. Thank you. So that's the opening statement. And it seemed very clear to the plaintiff attorney, of course, after the fact, what was going on. It seemed clear to the friend Deneen that when you go to the ED with chest pain, you're worried about a heart attack. But at least to this physician, it wasn't completely clear, at least as reflected in their documentation, that that was the question that Stacy's presentation was asking. Greg, what do you think? Was that an effective opening statement from this attorney? Well, I think what it does is take... Uh, six or 12, whatever the jury is in that state, common people who believe that the reason emergency departments exist is for emergencies. Otherwise, you would have waited to go see your family doctor. You would have gone to the clinic. You would have done this or that. So if you come to an emergency department, there must be an emergency of some kind. Now, it would be too much to expect that a jury is going to be able to uh, worry about initially when they hear this story that there's a dissection going on or something like that. That's way beyond what juries would know. But they do know about their heart. Most common killer of people above 40 in America is probably still their heart if you take the entire group. That's the way they're going to think. Yeah, and that's exactly right. This is not, you know, brain surgery as far as this type of thing goes. Now, Stacy and her friend Deneen probably weren't thinking about things like PE or dissection. However, and we'll talk about this in just a few minutes, in the history, it's reflected that the patient actually did have symptoms of those things also. She had some pleuritic chest pain and there was some radiation also. So if folks want to listen to that actual case and the longer discussion of that, that's on Risk Management Monthly from 2013. If you, uh, as a listener, <laughs> remember that actual case, you get some extra credit for that. But um, there's the longer discussion of that. Well, I'll talk about a couple other specific points in, in this as we go through. Rick? Yeah, I'm surprised that you uh, can recall the it was 2013, and we've we, have we been doing this that long? Yes, oh my yes, God. we have, Rick, yes. <laughs> well, you know, this is another example of where uh, the discharge diagnosis is a is either a um, hypertension, yeah, that's a diagnosis, but that's not, you know, the, the cause of the person's symptoms that are there. Bronchospasm is a finding, but that, what is the cause of the bronchospasm? So it's like, uh, these are weak diagnoses for sure, and they don't really address putting this all together and what, what is the ultimate pathology that you're dealing with here. And I'll say that with the 
uh, over 50 cases that I've done as far as medical legal review, it's astounding to me how commonly there is a chief complaint that's not reflected in the medical decision making or within the diagnosis. And in all fairness to the patient, you know, they've told their story to the uh, paramedic and the person at registration and then the tech and then the nurse. And like, sometimes by the time I get in there, they said, I've already told my story five times. And I'm like, yeah, but it's me. That's the one you really need to tell your story to. Right. <laughs> but I get it that they're frustrated because they've told this a million times. And it's like, they're thinking that we're not communicating with each other. And in the end, it's more just sort of a process issue of how we go things. One other point about this chief complaint, and then we'll move on to the third sort of what I call the hidden or sort of secret level of chief complaint understanding. But one other thing about Stacy's case, and the chief complaint was chest pain dash pain from above the waist to head, neck, and arms. This was a patient with multiple chief complaints, right? She had pain from the waist on up, like the only thing that really didn't hurt was her left little finger, right? And that's frustrating to us. I mean, I get it. And look, you know, we don't need to either like all of our own patients. We don't need to like the staff we work with. I mean, I get that whole thing and it can be frustrating when we're in the midst of a busy day, but I haven't figured out a better way with a multiple complaint patient beyond assessing all of those complaints. Now, some things, for example, headache and chest pain, you can ask one question, for example, fever, and then consider at least the diagnoses of pneumonia or diagnosis of meningitis, right? So it's not because you have three chief complaints. It lengthens your evaluation by threefold. However, I don't think you can really walk out the door when a patient has something like chest pain and ignore that as a chief complaint. I get it if like, you know, their ankle has been hurting for three years or they have, you know, right knee pain from the football injury for, for seven years. I get it. You know, you can have them follow up with the PCP for that. But one of these new complaints, one of these potential life-threatening complaints, we just need to further evaluate for that. And it might take extra time. And it's sort of, it's tough. I mean, it, 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 it sort of sucks, right? But that's just one of the things that with our job, there's a lot of great things about our job. This is just one thing that makes it a little bit harder. So let me get to the third level here. And this is what I call, like I said, sort of like secret hidden level. And I'm going to give an example of why this is important. And then we have more examples of that also. But the patient's presentation is something, again, in level two that we need to understand. I would contend that the patient and this is level three, also needs to understand the question that their presentation is asking. And I'm going to use this case as an example of why they need to understand that. So this is a case of a man in his 30s. He is a construction worker, and he had his arm pinned, although that probably seems to overstate a little bit this, but pinned between a forklift and a wall. And uh, he, he worked and came to a emergency department um, with that, they called the paramedics, they brought him in, and he actually had a pretty good evaluation. So they did a good history. He had pain. It was sort of like in the wrist and sort of distal forearm area. They did a good exam with palpation. There were no cuts or breaks in the skin. Neurovascular status was intact. They did an x-ray, which didn't show any fractures. And then even in addition to that and putting the patient in a splint, they called the orthopedist and they asked the patient to follow up in two days. And the orthopedist said, yeah, that sounds great. I'll see the patient in a couple of days and to follow up in my office. So 
before I tell you what happened, or I guess before I get some of your thoughts on this, I'm just going to give you a little bit more window into this as far as why this third level, this level of making sure the patient understands the question their presentation is asking, why that's important. And that's because the patient was prescribed hydrocodone acetaminophen, so they were prescribed Vicodin. They called back the next day because the pain was worse, and they were connected with one of the nurses who then said that they spoke with the physician and they changed the pain medicine over the phone. And this was later contested because no physician actually ad, you know, ag- admitted that they actually agreed to that and the nurse couldn't remember which doctor they had talked to. But they changed the medication from the hydrocodone product to the oxycodone product. So they changed it from Vicodin to Percocet. And that was on day two. And in day three, the day that they were supposed to follow up with the orthopedist. Well, I guess I'll I'll stop now for a second. I, I'm sure you guys are both sort of like writhing in your seats. And uh, Greg, I can see your face. I know the listener can't, but um, I know that you're thinking, what, what, of course, what is the question that this patient's presentation asked? Well, obviously, if you've got somebody on the phone, <clears throat> and I'll let all my prejudices out here now. No, I, we don't have time for that, Greg. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that that working on the phone. Um, I don't want most of the good experiences of my life to be phone experiences. You know those services you call up. I mean, the bottom line is this: when someone says, "Hi, I was in there, and I'm worse, and I'm on pain medicine," there's only one response. Come back, come back now. Uh, We'll look at you. I'm not into the idea of changing one narcotic for another. It's not the same as examination, because particularly with a point in time, uh, you may now have uh, different vascularity when you look at the extremity. You may have different pulses, and you may have a lot of different things. I am not in favor of of practicing telephone medicine on a patient like that, who, you know, we know could be going downhill. We sent them out to come back to see us, just have them come back. And I think that anybody who says anything on the phone other than we're open 24 hours a day and we'll see ya has made a mistake. Anyway, that's my prejudice. You know, we've talked about that, a long time about discharge instructions. Discharge instructions are, uh, is is anything new happening that wasn't happening before, come back, yes. Is that anything worse? Is it worse than it was, come back, yes. And um, is it taking longer to heal than we anticipated? Those are the three things that would call, has have somebody come back. And the idea that, you know, this is kind of like an annoying phone call in a busy shift to a different doctor and they want to shine it on. And that doctor just made a very bad decision. And it was like, this is emergency medicine 101, One. a new problem and a, an increasing pain. The guy has no idea or the person has no idea what the diagnosis is. You know, they put a, probably put down a contusion of the arm or something like that, forgetting about the opportunities for compartment syndromes and those kinds of things. So what harm is there in having them come back? It is, it's the safest thing to do for yeah. you and the patient. Yeah, so my contention with this case would be, first of all, the ED obviously made a mistake by prescribing a different medication. I mean, without a doubt, that was a 
mistake that they did. But my contention with understanding the third level of chief complaint and the importance that the patient understands when there's some diagnostic uncertainty, in other words, when the question their presentation is asking hasn't been answered with 100% certainty, and if that's a one, one in 100 thing, one in a thousand thing, either way, with the 150 to 175,000 patients we're going to see in our career, it's certainly important that we catch those one in a thousand things. If this patient would have left with the understanding, look, you know, we don't think you have compartment syndrome now, or we know you don't based on our assessment of you, but we want to make sure that you realize that this is something that can develop. And then the patient the next day has pain out of proportion. And at that point, maybe the patient would be more likely to come back to the ED. I have multiple cases that I have worked on where they ask the patient later or ask the family member, why didn't you go back to the emergency department? And they say things, and I'm sure, Greg, you've had this in your medical legal experience also, where they say, they told me nothing was wrong or they already did all the tests. I didn't think it would be helpful. And so the patient understanding this third level of the chief complaint is super important as that safeguard because if that would have happened in this case, the patient would never have called the ED in the first place. They would have just come back to the ED like both you guys just said. And the second part about that is, and I hark back to this article by Bickel in the American Journal of College of Surgery, when they looked at patients with right lower quadrant pain who had, it turned out later to be appendicitis, and they found that less than 2% ruptured at 36 hours. And the reason I sort of want to use that specific case as a example in this situation is because, you know, if you have a patient with 12 hours of abdominal pain and you think it's really unlikely to be appendicitis and they don't even need any testing at all and you send the patient home, maybe they've got like vomiting and diarrhea, maybe some nonspecific pain, no fever, whatever it might happen to be you still want to make sure that they understand that we have not completely excluded. I'm not talking about your normal vomiting and diarrhea patient, but if there is some abdominal pain or maybe a little bit in the right low quadrant and repeated exams, et cetera, but to them understand that that could be going on and understanding the literature to the point that less than 2% rupture at 36 hours at the 12 hour mark, to me, it seems very reasonable that the patient would come back immediately with worse pain fever and they would come back if there's any pain whatsoever in say eight or 12 hours, that to me seems like a very reasonable patient centric and a very safe way to manage that patient. In this specific situation with the patient with the crush injury of their arm, if you're going to get compartment syndrome, it's great they talked to the orthopedist. It's great that they thought they could be discharged. And it's great that they agreed to follow up. My problem is with the timing of follow up. To me, it feels like 48 hours is too long. Way like too long. it's beyond the time when you would get the compartment syndrome. So those two things, if they were done differently, as far as the better understanding of chief complaint, I think would have improved patient safety in the situation. Yes, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. And the funny thing was, I uh, early on in my career, I would get into some trouble with my colleagues when I'd have all, a lot of these people come back because uh, say, well, I got to see somebody in the morning that seen, and we can't bill them again and this kind of stuff. That's all a huge mistake. Just see them back. What can what can go wrong with bringing them back? Take care of the billing so that there's a, you know, a ten dollar recheck or whatever you want it to be. But I don't think that uh, that re- repeat visits is ever wrong. 
I don't know how you can go wrong with that. You know, I, I think that um, we may be giving the uh, position a little bit too much credit here because uh, it's not clear that they uh, entertain the diagnosis of or the risk of uh, a compartment syndrome. Um, I kind of think it may be inferred that because they called the orthopedist for a follow-up that they had some sub, some level of concern because normally a, a contusion necessarily wouldn't be uh, seen uh, and there wouldn't be any urgency. But the guy came in by paramedics and uh, it sounds like it was more of a big deal than not. But if you asked the doctor specifically, had you considered the uh, potential for uh, compartment syndrome here, I, w I would think that the answer may be no. Yeah, yeah you, might, you might have been right, actually, because on the surface, I mean, it sounds really great. Good exam, neurovascular, documentation, splint, x-ray, follow-up. However, did they consider that or not? And, and frankly, there are certainly are other potential causes of pain, you know, hematoma, there could have been some sort of undiagnosed dislocation, an undiagnosed fracture, even with the negative x-ray, some sort of vascular injury. Um, there wasn't any cut or break in the skin, but eventually subsequent infection, something like that. But yeah, I mean, did they consider that as a possibility? And I think considering that, and that brings me to novel, another thought on documentation, this is sort of one of the controversies controversies with documentation, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, is documenting a differential diagnosis. I'm personally not a fan, and I'll, and I'll tell you why I'm not. And I shouldn't say just in all comers, but these EMRs that automatically put in 10 things in the differential, to me, I'm not a fan of that in the sense that, you know, if you put in the differential like, for example, aortic dissection in a patient with chest pain, and it turns out to be that you know, you don't get partial credit, you know, it's not like yeah, being right. in like fifth grade where you like, you know, show your work and you get the answer almost all the way. Right. So you get like half credit, you know, in this situation, you can't put a dissection in your differential, but not ask even one question as to the cue to the onset, the character, of the pain, the severity of the pain, the radiation to the back, the above and below diaphragm symptoms, numbness, all those different things that we might see are vital sign abnormalities with a patient with aortic dissection. So without a doubt, in this situation, putting compartment syndrome in your medical decision-making forces you to think about that. And in this situation, I think especially that one diagnosis is a good idea. Something like, I feel the risk of compartment syndrome at this time is unlikely or is non-existent. However, the patient does understand that this is a possibility over the next 24 hours and agrees to return immediately with these specific symptoms. Then another little tricky thing that I do, and I'd encourage people to do this also with their documentation, when you're filling out the disposition papers, in addition to the medical decision-making part, just put a couple of words, and here's what I do. I'll say, as that's this little part that we type in in addition to that long sort of like aftercare instruction, you know, they usually get in you know, the 10 page thing, but that the part that I put in there, like when they should return, et cetera, I'll say something like, as we discussed, we have not, as we've discussed, compartment syndrome could develop over the next 24 hours. So if you get increased swelling, increased pain, increased numbness, or any of these things, you need to return to the emergency department immediately. But putting that, as we discussed, in your discharge paperwork, in a sense, it's like confirming in the medical decision-making note what you've put in there. It's a little tricky thing. It takes almost no time at all, but just one other measure to prove, I think later, if there is a bad outcome, that we actually 
have the interest and concern to give this information to the patient. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the term, <clears throat> the differential diagnosis. As one of my best teachers once said, there is no differential, the, the right ones and all the others. And after all, you can't list on every patient everything that this has ever been associated with. I mean, it's like listing all the causes of right lower quadrant pain. Uh, there's a book that does that. And, and, and it, it was Zachary Cope's uh, The Acute Abdomen. And so you can't do that successfully, but to warn people that it, it, the examination may vary because it was acute injury, it may change, it may get worse. We expect to see you back here. This is where you come. That is what they need to understand is that they don't get just one visit. I hope I wouldn't have to make every diagnosis successfully on the first visit because there are going to be people who do not show you what they've got on, the, on that first coming to the department. That's just the way it is. And Greg, that's exactly the point is that we can't diagnose all disease because we're always balancing, aren't we? We're balancing the risk of missing serious disease with the risk of overtesting and potentially causing harm because of that overtesting. Right. So we're trying to sort of thread that needle correctly, just like you're saying. And that's why that follow-up. Now, I'm not talking about follow-up in an 86-year-old with a syncopal episode who has a history of congestive heart failure, where it's very possibly from an arrhythmia. You know, you can't really say, come back if your heart stops, right? But for something like this, when the patient probably doesn't at the time have compartment syndrome, but they certainly might develop that in the future, I think that's really, really important to do. So just finishing that case out, I just wanted to refer the listener. There's an article, probably one of the best articles I've ever read, but this is by Marchesi et al., M-A-R-C-H-E-S-I. This is 66 closed claims a patient with acute compartment syndrome after trauma. It's in the journal Injury 2014. And I, I promise you, you will not regret pulling this article and looking at it because it's really well done, first as far as the symptoms of compartment syndrome, and then with those 66 medical legal cases of the common themes of why compartment syndrome is missed in those situations. Yeah, no, and I, and I, I think that any time you've got a patient like this young guy, make sure there's somebody with him who is not in acute pain at that moment who can hear your discussion. The wife, the foreman, the this, the that, because I honestly believe patients go through a period of time when they're not listening to that discussion. I mean, they've got other pain, they've got other things they're thinking about. I want somebody whose name I can put down and their relationship and put that on the chart too so they feel some ownership of this patient. And so I, I think we make a huge mistake as, I, as I've often told uh, my nursing person, I don't want to see the patient until their significant other who's taking them home is in the room as well because I think their cooperation and listening to the discussion has saved us multiple times. Yeah, to totally agree. Mike, I wanna get back to the idea of having a differential diagnosis in the chart. Um, I think logically it, it makes sense that uh, to read a chart where there is 
things that you've considered uh, so that uh, you have shown the world, whoever reads your chart, that you've been careful. However, uh, I think that differential can really be taken apart very successfully by trial lawyers. Because as an example, you know, in the aortic dissection, well, did you check the pulses? Were they uh, equal? Well, you know, they can certainly be equal in aortic dissection. Was the mediastinum widened on chest x-ray? Well, no, it wasn't. Well, the fact is you still can have a dissection with that, all, that, that being the case. So have you really worked it up? No, you haven't done a, a CT angi uh, angiogram, uh, and that's the that's the that's the test for a uh, dissection. So, and the same thing with pulmonary emboli and all of these other diagnoses that um, you may have considered, but you really haven't done the full job. You haven't done the full workup to evaluate somebody for a PE, actually. So you've kind of kind of worked it up. So I want to give an example of what I think is a good medical decision-making note with the case that you just gave with a PE. So for example, any medical student would tell you that a 20-year-old on oral contraceptives with hemoptysis should be worked up for a PE, right? I mean, of course, that seems so obvious. However, say, for example, you have the exact same patient, and we can sort of argue whether the, you know, the prevalence of tachycardia tachypnea in PE was autopsy studies or not. But just for example, you have that patient with normal vital signs who is sitting in a room with their two siblings who both have runny nose and cough, and your patient is coughing up colored sputum that now has had some blood streaks in it. And you say something in your medical decision-making note like, I've considered the possibility of PE, but feel that's very unlikely because I have an alternative reason for the patient's symptoms of chest pain. In other words, it hurts when they cough and they have a fever and their two siblings are sick with upper respiratory infections and there's no unilateral leg swelling. Now, that doesn't completely rule that out. I mean, of course it doesn't, but that's a medical decision-making note using at least one item from a differential, again, also addressing the question that the patient's presentation is asking that really, I think, in a lot of ways goes pretty far at explaining, maybe even with the shared decision-making model, at explaining why you did what you did or didn't do what you didn't do. In other words, didn't check a D-dimer with all the potential false positives for that. Now, all three of us, we might have different risk tolerances and maybe you guys would work that patient up or maybe you wouldn't. But the point is that that to me feels like a pretty reasonable way to use a differential to reflect that in your medical decision-making as well using a shared decision-making model and again, the important part, that third sort of hidden secret level of the chief complaint is making sure the patient understands that we have not completely definitively ruled out PE so that she does come back if her chest pain worsens or she develops dyspnea or, you know, tachypnea, one of those types of things. So I'm going to give you, if it's okay, one more chief complaint case. I'll do this one very quickly, and then we're going to move on to the history. And this last case was also one that we did on Risk Management Monthly, and this is a the case of <laughs> Rick, you'll, you'll probably sort of smile and roll your eyes with this. And I only mention it just because of the chief complaint, but this is the case you've heard many times of the 42-year-old fireman with the shoulder pain. And the only reason I bring that case up is not to try to figure out the diagnosis of that, because I'll tell you right up front, the diagnosis was necrotizing fasciitis, necrotizing myositis. The patient got sent home, and then when he came back the next day, he went straight to surgery and died two weeks to the day that he came back to the emergency department. So that's the the diagnosis, that's the end of the whole thing. But what I'll tell you, and if the 
listener wants to go back and listen to that case from 2012, they certainly can. But if you looked at the chief complaint for this patient, and this was a written chief complaint, it says complaint of left shoulder pain, and the next two words are illegible. As it turns out, what those next two words were are chills and fever. So it's actually written in the chief complaint that the patient had a fever. Now, for this specific patient who was diagnosed with a shoulder pain, a shoulder strain, the complaint of fever is what I call a game-changing question, or it's a game-changing answer for that. You know, fever might mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Maybe you ask a patient, do you have fever? Yes, I have chills. And you're sort of saying, I'm saying this sort of in a funny way. I ask you if you're hot, you say, yes, I'm hot, I'm cold, right? So, you know, I get it's like the opposite of what you're saying. But and some people actually do have a fever. To me, you need the follow-up question. Fever, yes. What do you mean by fever? How did you get that? I used an oral thermometer last night at eight o'clock as 102.9, or I felt warm. And with kids, yeah, parents actually have pretty good reliability for that. But with other people, they might not have as good of reliability for adults talking about their own fever, or they might actually mean something totally different. So I'm going to read to you the cross-examination of the defendant emergency physician by the plaintiff attorney. And this is when they were asked about the chief complaint. So whether it's handwritten and you just can't read it because it's sort of sloppy, or whether it's handwritten or, or whether it's in an EMR and you can't find it because your EMR is so cumbersome, well, either way, it's important that we know what the chief complaint is. So here was the interaction. And as it turns out, the and Greg, I'm sure you're going to uh, you know, sort of be shaking in your chair hearing this. The physician tried to pull a fast one on the attorney at trial, and the attorney was sharp enough to realize that during the deposition, the physician had given a different answer. So mm -hmm. here's what they say. Question, you never read the triage nurse's note about David Likens before he was discharged, did you? Answer, I, uh, when a physician assistant presents a patient to us, it's my practice to look at the chart. I like to look at the vital signs, medications, allergies, and I'll glance at the triage note. Question, you did not read the triage note on David Likens on March the 2nd, did you? Answer, I don't recall, sir. Question, and when you attempted to read it, you said you weren't able to make out anything but complaint of left shoulder pain, correct? Well, if that's from my deposition, I'd have to review it. Right, I'll let you look at page 10 of your deposition. Excuse me just a second while I get it. May I approach the witness, Your Honor? All right, and so, what they did is they actually, in the interim, had interviewed the nurse who said he had, and this is written in the chief complaint, left shoulder pain, fever, chills. Question, did you know that on March 2nd when you treated the patient? Sir, I'm not sure what I recalled about reading that chart. Would you read your answer from your deposition to the ladies and gentlemen of the jury? And the physician answers in this way that none of us would ever want to be in this situation. The best I can tell is, he says, there is a complaint of complaint of left shoulder pain. Then the next thing I can pick up is symptoms started yesterday afternoon. That's all I can read. Question, well, you're not implying that at the time of your deposition in November, somehow there's some kind of trickery by showing you copies you couldn't read, but you could read the original. Answer, uh, that's not what I'm implying, sir. Uh, you asked if I could read those, I couldn't read those copies. So what this physician did in a very clever way is caught the physician, unfortunately, in sort of a lie, where he was trying to say that he did read the chief complaint. However, during his deposition, he wasn't even able to read what had been written there. This was a terribly tragic case, and the answer in some ways 
to the diagnosis. And it would have been a hard diagnosis. I totally get it. But the answer in some ways was based on something that was in the chief complaint. As it turns out, the jury chose for the defendant. Possibly one of the reasons for that, Greg, and I'm going to bring you in here, is that you were one of the defense expert witnesses on this case of yeah. David Likens with Dwight Brandon. Yes, yes, I, I, I'm well aware of that. And it was a uh, it was an ugly, ugly case from beginning. You realize there's no winners in this case. There's a doctor who may get off and may doesn't have to suffer anymore. But nobody wins a case like this. Here's a young guy, a firefighter, the the bulwark of the community, you know, uh, and, and and he's the kind of guy that that everybody has on TV during COVID infections and that sort of thing. I uh, it, it's a it's, it was a very difficult case. The other thing is to other emergency doctors, how many 31-year-old firemen who, um, and and this is a problem with the case as well, but actually have necrotizing fasciitis in a show who haven't done anything, do something, penetrate it, have a needle stick in it, have something go on that would give you that, and have some changes in the skin, have, have, have an abscess, have a swelling, have something. And none of that was on the chart. And, you know, what I said to myself when this was done was, um, there but for the grace of God go I, because I could certainly be sitting there as the defendant in this case. And if you get, if you try this case near Christmas with this guy's children in their Christmas outfits looking at the jury at closing. You know what? This could be a very difficult case. Well, Michael, you're right. There are certain uh, findings that really changed substantially the direction that you're going to go in. And the idea that this person said they had uh, fever, which was kind of muddled in terms of the ability to read it. You know, maybe the temperature was elevated in the emergency department. The same thing would apply to somebody who has you know, musculoskeletal back pain, who has the temperature of 100.4, uh, in fact, uh, really has metal in them and has had a urinary tract infection and has a spinal epidural abscess going on. Once you hit that fever and back pain, you're going down the dangerous trail of, does this person have a spinal epidural abscess? Because you have to connect the two. You just can't say these are uh, two phenomena that have nothing to do with each other. And I'm going to focus on the the shoulder pain, which is likely to be musculoskeletal. That's what we get paid the big bucks for is to be able to pick up these relationships and, um, and in the process go from the ordinary to the extraordinary diagnosis. And in certain cases, there's a, there's a handful of diagnoses that you cannot miss on the first ER visit. And, Spinal epidural abscess is one, and necrotizing fasciitis is another. Yep. Yeah. Well, the other thing is, this is also one of those cases where the discharge instructions, who got it, what was said, when were you supposed to return, I have a lot of trouble believing that uh, he didn't have a progressive downhill course for a while at home, that he should have been seen back again. 
Well, because so, it's going to yeah. be it's going to be obvious at some point in time. Well, that really serves to emphasize that third point, that third level of making sure the patient understands the question that their presentation is asking. And I'll tell you why, because when the patient left the emergency department, he and his wife were on the way to the pharmacy to pick up the pain medicine, and they stopped at the gas station. His wife got out and pumped some gas, and he got out, pulled down his pants, and urinated on the gas pump. He had la belle indifference. He had that sort of metabolic encephalopathy from the necrotic process that was occurring, my contention is if they did understand some diagnostic uncertainty, even if we didn't know exactly the nature of that, that they would have returned. This physician assistant who saw the patient was obviously concerned. Not only did he see the patient, but he had discussion with the attending emergency physician. The emergency physician didn't only talk to the PA, but also went and saw the patient himself. He also put a note on the chart. They called the primary care doctor. So from the beginning, this is clearly not just a simple shoulder strain, even though the patient did give a history that had been lifting patients before the day before. There wasn't that association causation with the lifting the patients and then the onset of the shoulder pain. And also he had pain out of proportion. There are a lot of other things and going back in 2012 risk management monthly listening to this case, I think is instructive because I've learned, you know, and as I go through my career, thought about this case so many times in the multiple different teaching points, but finishing this sort of chief complaint, because I want to get to history, at least to some degree, and we can certainly do some more at another time if we want to. But the last part of the chief complaint, and I, I, I'm apologize to the listener in advance, like the three different levels, right? But the last part is to understand the patient's concern. And the reason I say that, and just one very quick example of that, is the you know 25-year-old who comes in with two days of cough, you know, waiting two hours in the waiting room at 10 below zero in Columbus, Ohio, or, you know, in Ann Arbor, and they come back and you're like, oh my gosh, this can be nothing except for a URI. It just is a URI, a viral URI. And you ask the patient, you know, and they say, well, I'm concerned about lung cancer because my aunt had the exact same symptoms. And then I, of course, say, well, of course she did, except that she smoked for 60 years and she had 40 pounds of undiagnosed weight loss, et cetera, et cetera, right? But the fact is this, is that understanding the patient's concern, reassurance is a part of healing. And though it's not for us, and I say this a little bit of a facetious way, it's not as you know sexy as taking care of the multi-trauma patient through the windshield 40 feet down the highway where we're doing chest tubes and intubation. It's not as exciting. That's not like what you think of when you think of emergency medicine, but we have a very big ability to help patients with the act of reassurance. They don't all need to leave with a prescription. They don't all need to leave with something like that, but they need to leave feeling that their concern was heard and that if they don't need any specific intervention at the time, that we do give them some reassurance. So that's sort of the last level of the chief complaint. I think we probably talked enough about it. I have tons more examples. The last thing I would say about that actual case of the fireman is they asked the the, the patient's wife, um, because he, of course, unfortunately expired, they asked her, why didn't you go back to the ED sooner? And she said, they told us nothing was wrong, that they'd done all the tests. I mean, that's why they didn't go back because they didn't understand that third level. So exactly. Yeah. Anybody who buys that w- we understand everything, 
you know, yes. obviously hasn't watched the last pandemic. No, we don't understand everything. And sometimes you got to give us a second chance at that. And I, as I remember when this trial took place, that was the uh, that was the position that I took, that sometimes you got to have something that kicks you over. And um, uh, it's a it was a, it was a very difficult case. OK, so um, so when you think about history and, you know, Greg, I'd again be interested in your thoughts on this is it's amazing to me that we teach medical students about things like whatever mnemonic you'd use, you know, code ears or old cars, you know, onset location, duration, exacerbators, relievers, et cetera, those types of things that to me, the history where we make the diagnosis or at least narrow it down to a couple different possibilities about 90% of the time across really most specialties. I mean, I'm not saying ophthalmology or dermatology necessarily, but with our specialty, the history is really the thing that we have as far as most patients. We like to think of ourselves as, you know, proceduralists. We like to think of ourselves as intensivists and critical care specialists. But really, in the end, mostly what we are in the emergency department is historians. And, you know, the patient is not a poor historian. Like the ancient Aztecs were terrible historians, right? They're all dead. I can't get any history from those guys, right? <laughs> yeah. So we are the historian and the patient is one that's giving the history. So that's a little bit of a pet peeve of mine when they say patient is a bad historian, is that we are the one that is required to get that history, whether it's from the patient or bystanders or paramedics or whoever that might happen to be. So when I look at the history from most of these charts, what I find is a lot of past history, totally cool, put that in your history personnel. A lot of review systems also, totally cool, put that in your history personnel. I mean, if you want to put your history in the physical exam section, your review of systems in the history section, your diagnosis in the chief complaint section, I mean, all that stuff, it's sort of sloppy, but you know, you can still bill for it and medical legally might be fine also. I wouldn't recommend doing that, but the point is you can put stuff wherever you want, but what needs to absolutely be done is in the history of present illness, you need to have at least a history of the <laughs> present illness. And it is so frequent that I find in the misses where we don't have an adequate history. So we talked about Stacy, and I'm going to give you, and I'm just going to read to you the history that they gave. It's pretty short. And then I'll just give you a couple of thoughts that I have on it. They say, this is the physician note, the patient member presented at 6.13 p.m. This is 6.55 p.m. And this is the exact documentation that was on the chart. Patient is a 41-year-old woman with a chief complaint of chest pain for the last one day or so. Pain is a tightness across the chest and upper arms, which is worsened by deep breaths. Radiates the left arm. Okay? So of the actual history of present illness, we'll stop there. Now, I'm going to give you some additional stuff, and it was good they put it in here. Past medical history of high blood pressure and diabetes. So that's good. Some review systems, no nausea, vomiting, coughing, blood, syncope, feeling of doom, shortness of breath, sweating, or palpitations. That's good. Nursing notes reviewed. That's good. Social history, smoker, family history, cardiac disease at the age of 55. So when I look at this, what I see is in a differential, the question that the presentation is asking, not only about ACS, which was demonstrated that this did occur because her 17-year-old daughter early the next morning was doing chest compressions while she was calling 911 with the phone between her cheek and her shoulder when she's doing this on her mother that next morning unsuccessful and an autopsy the next day showed that she did actually have a MI. But they all there's also other things that are going on here. They said the patient 
is the patient's pain is worsened by deep breaths. So that's another question that needed to be answered, which wasn't. They did a chest X-ray, they did an EKG, but they didn't do a troponin, they didn't do a D-dimer. And the concern that I have is that there were additional things even beyond ACS. Now, of course, we know that that's the case, the other thing is when you think about things like risk factors, as far as getting that information in the history, that's another thing which wasn't really done. Now, there is, again, some controversy. And these days, we're pretty good on the risk factors because of the heart score. But when they actually went back and they asked the emergency physician, they went through each of those risk factors and they asked them one at a time, is this important that we get? did the patient have that? And so they said, you know, did the patient have hypertension? Yes, sir. Did the patient have diabetes? Yes, sir. Was she a smoker? Yes, sir. Was, um, was there a positive family history? Yes, sir. And they ended up by saying, that's a lot of risk factors, isn't it? And the answer was to that, yes, sir. So in the end, they left themselves open. This was, to me, a Example, Greg, like you have said, and like I quoted you in the beginning of documenting your own malpractice in some ways. They documented there was a concern and they didn't follow up on it. They didn't go to that next level. Right. Absolutely. I'm going to give another example, and this is a, a real tragic one. And we could probably close with this one because I know I personally, and I'm sure the listeners also want to make sure that we do get to hear the wine of the month. So uh, sorry to cut cut you off on that earlier. But if we, uh, Greg, I mean, uh, Rick, we have maybe five minutes for this last part. Oh, no, I think we have a solid, you know, eight or nine minutes. And- Should I talk slower? <laughs> Just kidding. No, no, not at all. <laughs> please, please. We're emergency physicians, right? Yeah, talk faster. So this is a case of a patient that I saw, and I saw this patient at six o'clock in the morning. And I will tell you, in maybe a self-deprecating way or just like a window into my soul, that I was relieving the night physician who I sort of viewed as an over-tester. And I will say that very honestly, that when they told me they had ordered all these tests on this patient who was a 42-year-old woman who had three things, chronic abdominal pain, end-stage renal disease on dialysis, and she was a frequent flyer. And she'd been to the ED 13 times in the last couple of months. So when I was seeing this patient and assuming care of this patient, waiting for the test results to come back, I have to say, honestly, my inner voice, and I hopefully I didn't betray it too much with my outer expression, my inner voice said, this person, this physician is an over-tester, and I'm sure uh, that she doesn't need these tests. But I want to take you back to about 18 hours previous when she came in the day before. What I want to do is I want to read you the history that was recorded at that initial visit. So again, 42 woman, chronic abdominal pain, frequent flyer, and stage renal disease on dialysis. And she came in with abdominal pain. I'm going to actually, I told you, I asked you for me to read slower. I'm going to actually talk twice as fast through this history. And Here is the history. Hopefully I can get through it in like 40 seconds. Patient arrives by EMS from home for abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, which began this morning. Patient keeps stating over and over again that she, quote, wants something for pain and nausea. When asked about what she had for pain today, she says, nothing. I don't like to take anything before dialysis. She finished dialysis a few hours ago, states her last pain meds were yesterday. She's on chronic oxycodone and oxycontin, states she had them at home but didn't take them. Of note that she was admitted, this is about three weeks previous, with several issues. 
an ischemic limb requiring a stent placement, and narcotic dependence from back abdominal skin issues and end-stage renal disease and hyperkalemia. She's known to have chronic cholecystitis, but has been deemed a very poor surgical candidate, cannot quantify the amount of vomit she's had. Some spit is noted bedside, very poor historian, no fever, patient unwilling to answer review systems for me despite multiple attempts. So I know the listener can't actually see the chart, but I will just summarize this for you. Here is the history of present illness. Here is the chief complaint. She has abdominal pain. Here's the history of present illness. She has abdominal pain. I mean, there's really no actual history. There's tons of words. Good job for that. I mean, really nicely done putting a lot of ink to paper, but there's really no true history. When did it start? Is it similar to past pain? What was the cue to the onset? Even what's the location? What's the severity? What's the character? Are there other associated symptoms? They asked about fever, but didn't ask about other things. We know she has vomiting. And they even documented, again, Greg, I, I hate to quote you so many times, Greg, on these cases here, <laughs> but they also documented their own malpractice in a certain way, at least the way I see it. Very poor historian. Obviously, this reflects back on the physician. The fact that she's unwilling to answer review systems for me despite multiple attempts and that she keeps stating over and over again she wants something for pain. Because I'll tell you what actually was happening with this patient, and I think you and probably many of the listeners can guess what was happening with this patient who had recent limb ischemia and was on dialysis, is that this patient had mesenteric ischemia, mesenteric infarction. And when her CAT scan that I then reviewed from the night physician that I was relieving, right? When the CAT scan came back and showed that, and I called the surgeon and they took the patient right up to the OR. And when the surgeon opened her up, stem to stern and found that her entire bowel was black and necrotic and they closed her up, she was dead in eight hours. So what they documented is that she was a very poor historian and wouldn't answer review systems for me. Well, of course she wouldn't because she also had metabolic encephalopathy from this necrotic process that was occurring. She kept asking over and over again for something for pain. Of course she did because her entire bowel was dead and she was in severe pain. But the way that the history reads to me, first of all, is that it's not an actual history at all. It's a lot of past history and other stuff, which again is great to put in there, but the actual history of present illness was not present in this section. And then the second thing, it was very clear that this physician was in the kindest of ways annoyed by the patient or in the most unkindness of ways, the physician didn't like this patient. This to me was an example of history gone awry, of an opportunity that we had to get some information on this patient or her mother actually who had come there with her to ask her additional questions, which was never done, to get a history that could help have helped potentially to manage this patient's symptoms before they were irreversible. And then it wasn't until 18 hours later when she now had mesenteric infarction, not just ischemia, and she was irretrievable, unfortunately. This was our opportunity, which we didn't use. Yeah. And I'm I'm sure someone opined uh, in this case that had they been in there even a few hours earlier, there probably wouldn't have been any difference in the outcome with this patient. But it still doesn't make the family feel good uh, that that they had to suffer and went through this period of time. Yeah, this was a super tough case. And the, you know, allegation 
maybe was the standard of care. I mean, I get it, but was it excellence in care? Absolutely not. Right. If this was our sibling or parent or child or friend, I don't think we'd be pleased with this care. Not only was it a poor history and other parts of it also, (laughs) but we're just talking about the history here, but it was also a pretty, I think, obvious reflection of the physician's disdain for the patient. Yes. And, and juries will punish you for, for disrespecting the physician, the, the patient. And you should understand that they can find against you for any reason they want. And if they're mad because you were a jerk that day, they're mad because you were a jerk that day and they can find against you. You know, I think in emergency medicine, uh, our primary goal, our primary goal is to make the diagnosis. Um, once the diagnosis is made, you can look it up in terms of how tr- to treat it. But if you don't have a, go, uh, a good differential, a wide differential, when you go in to see somebody, if you don't think of ischemic bowel, you'll never make the diagnosis of ischemic bowel. If you don't think of the diagnosis of um, uh, uh, a... Uh, the, necrotizing fasciitis, you will never make that diagnosis. So you have to have all of these diagnoses in your differential, in your head, so that you can ask the questions that help lead you to those diagnoses. But if it's if you're clueless about um, them or you're not thinking about them, you're not going to make them. So it's really, really important to be knowledgeable about the, the potential for a differential and uh, to go in and trying to bird out what the diagnosis is, because once you've got it, fine. Look up, look up the treatment thereafter. If you don't remember the doses or 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 this, that, or the other thing. Yeah, I say that all the time. It's sort of stating the obvious, but if it's not in your differential, it won't be in your diagnosis. And we need in emergency medicine a really big differential, without mm-hmm. a doubt. Sometimes it's obvious, but sometimes we can have anchoring bias or premature closure of diagnosis and all those types of things. So the last sort of thought that I'd want to leave us with in the last maybe 20 seconds here is that in the end, you know, all this stuff is scary. It's scary thinking about potential legal actions. It's scary thinking about what rare things could, you know, kill our patients and young or old patients. But I don't want this in any way to be a thought that we need to practice defensive medicine, really just that we need to document in a way that's defensible and evaluate patients in a way that's defensible. So I, I don't know, maybe uh, I could leave us with that and, and that segs us into wine of the month, Greg. Are we there, Rick? Are we time for it? We're there. It? It's that time, Greg. Awesome. Well, did you dust off from your cellar? No, I, I, I'm glad that you, you gentlemen uh, want to hear wine of the month. Um, I'm in the process of uh, selling my uh, house I've had for 35 years. And one of the parts of that is I'm taking apart the wine cellar, uh, pulling out some great bottles from the past. Um, we uh, Many years ago, I bought a case of, of a 1996 Stag's Leap Vintage Creek. Now, it's unlikely, this is Napa Valley, uh, of course, and it's a Cabernet, you're unlikely to find a 96 anymore. But I would point out that this is one of the wines uh, that I've been drinking for years, the Stag's Leap, and it does do better with age, no question about it. 
Um, we've opened the 196, uh, 1996. We got another one to go. But uh, let me tell you, the Stag's Leap uh, Cabernet Sauvignon is a magnificent wine. And if you can get it, buy it. Uh, some of the wine uh, dealers will, will have a few of these bottles available. And uh, it's magnificent. So hats off to California, that parts of it, those parts of it which are not burning at this moment in time. Hey, Greg, uh, now you're uh, trying to clean out your wine cellar. You're, you're, there are two options here. You're going to drink it all. Have you considered uh, selling it all? You know, I mean, it sounds like you're trying to sell these bottles that you had right now. I mean, <laughs> you, you can't buy them on the market. and But Greg's got a whole case there. Yeah. Or yep, the uh, remains of a whole case. Well, let me tell a 24 you. 24-year-old wine. Yeah, and I put this, I put some of some uh, wines away, uh, both uh, French and uh, California. And I'm going to enjoy as my uh, as my career fades into the sunset, uh, drinking these wines. So I, I look forward to it. If either of you guys are are here for dinner before we actually move out, we we will definitely crack a bottle. Man, I'd great. love the opportunity to get on an airplane. I haven't been on an airplane since March. I'm getting like withdrawal kind of thing. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. I'll, I'll even go on one of these airplanes where they just park it and they feed you. You know, yep. did you see that thing where they were? On a, on a plane in somewhere over in Asia, and people got on it. They never flew anywhere. They just fed them on the airplane, and the, the some of the meals were five hundred dollars to be fed the first class <laughs> meal in the airplane. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, they, they sold out, didn't it? Like like within yeah. minutes. I mean, they said it was yeah. just like so popular. Well, that was that was also the flight that they uh, that Qantas flew over. Australia, where that that thing sold out right away too, and they just flew around in the sky for you know a few hours, visited Great Barrier Reef, then came back. Yep. Wow. <laughs> That's how sick we're getting now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> withdrawal. Flight withdrawal. We're, we're in bad need of them. <laughs> hey, listen, Mike. Thanks so much for uh, joining us. Uh, this is probably your fifth or sixth uh, or seventh iteration, and I do appreciate it. You have got a great fund of knowledge, and uh, where you get all these cases is. Uh, uh, beyond me, but I think that having actual cases helps so much to make it clear that, um, uh, you know, it's not just that we make mistakes. It's like we, some of these things are just kind of like, it's hard to believe that some of these mistakes are being made. Some of these things, mistakes indicate, you know, we just got to, you know, have a better job at making diagnoses, having a wide differential. And um, patients do get hurt by by our errors. And um, in those cases, I think that they have the right to um, um, the, the justice system. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I've, it's, it's always an honor to be on the program. And, and you know, the, the, the wisdom from you guys, my, my lifetime mentors, it's uh, it's always great to be here and shoot things off you guys. So the problem is, Rick, every and Greg, every time I mention the case, you guys always know the diagnosis. So I just can't fool you guys. This stuff is the problem. And and even some of them, Greg, you were the actual expert witness on them. Right, so, exactly. Yeah, you know that them very way. well. Right. Well, sometimes I'm the, I'm the defendant doctor too. Or, or so that, uh, right, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So we got to be careful on those cases. All right, Rick. Thanks a lot. Uh, and. Uh, we will uh, see everybody next month here on Risk Management Monthly. Yes. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>